Well, today we're going to talk about aligning with our omni-God. And originally I was assigned, assigned Psalm 103, and I had it all outlined and ready to go. And Dan said, you know, we really need something out of Book 5 of the Psalms. And so he said, would you do Psalm 139? Well, this has been a really uh, uh, interesting task. It was a better psalm for me, but it was also one that was a bit uh, challenging. And when we talk about aligning with our omni-God, we're going to see in this psalm the uh, uh, omniscience, the all-knowing of God. We're going to see his omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere present. And we're going to, sing, we're going to see his uh, omnipotence, his omnipotence, his all-power, as he is the creator of us and as he works in us. So, and then the fourth part of the psalm, basically the Lord says, I want you to align yourself with me. And uh, it's uh, rather convicting. It certainly was for me this week. So as we come to this psalm today, aligning with our omni-God, Psalm 139, and uh, as, we, as we look at this psalm, I want to introduce it by this uh, Christmas decoration that we have. A number of years ago, I was having lunch with a friend, and I said, you know, I've always wanted to have a Christmas star with a cross in the middle of it, and I've seen several of them now. But I wanted people to recognize that Christmas is not just about Christ in the manger, but is also Christ at the cross. And so uh, a few weeks later, there was a knock at my door, and this friend showed up, and he said, here it is. And he had made this cross uh, with a star around it, or he made the star with a cross in it, depending on your perspective. And uh, so we've put it up virtually every year since then. Well, uh, uh, three years ago or so, one of the strings of lights had burned out, and it doesn't look very good when one of the lights is out. You know, these are those lifetime guaranteed lights, you know. And uh, they just didn't know how long I would live. <laughs> but uh, so I said, you know, Beth, I need to get that string fixed. Well, uh, a few days later, she said, when are you going to get the lights fixed? And I said, uh, well, I, I, it was on my schedule, but you need to know me that I do have a schedule and I do have a plan. But when anybody wants to interrupt that schedule or that plan, it really chaps my hide. And uh, Beth was pretty insistent, so I said, okay, and went out to the garage and fixed it. Give you a little insight into my character. And uh, and then I hung it up, and oh, it was a joy to hang it up. It, it was not because I was still chapped. But But what happens for most of us is, we like to be our own person. We like to have our own schedule. We want to do things when we want to do them. And I especially don't, if I have a task to do, tell me what the task is, then get out of the way and let me do it. And so uh, that, was the, that was the plan. Well, it wasn't Beth's plan. And just yesterday she said, how about hanging pictures? I'm, I'm telling you that was not on my radar screen. So if I know it's on my radar screen, it's good. But when it's not, it's not. Well, this is a reflection a bit of what was going on with David. King David was really chafing at the fact that God knew everything about him. And so as we look at this psalm, Psalm 139, 1-6, in a sense it is a psalm of disorientation. We've been talking about orientation, disorientation. And as you first read the psalm, it doesn't sound like it's too much about disorientation, but it is. 
And um, David was chafing and struggling under the uh, all-knowing hand of the Lord, his omniscience. And like me, David wanted to have freedom. But like God, God knows. As a matter of fact, as we look at this passage, you think or you act, God knows. Can you say that with me? You think or you act, God knows. And you run, you cannot hide. So that's the main idea of the psalm here. And so what we need to do is align ourselves with our Maker and with His goodness. We need to align ourselves with our Maker and His goodness. We're going to see that theme repeated as we go through Psalm 139. So we begin in chapter, excuse me, Psalm 139, verse 1. And the uh, the first part of the psalm, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. That's actually part of the text, the original text. But then David continues, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. And that's, we can buy that, can't we? We can agree with that. The Lord knows us. He says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, and that's called a merism. And a merism is when there are two extremes. And so he says, you know me when I sit down, and you know, you know me when I rise up, and you know everything in between. And we're going to see a number of these in the psalm. And, and last week, Travis mentioned one of those in his message. And he said, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. So there's another one. Here's my path. I'm walking and I'm lying down and everything in between. And you're acquainted with all my ways. And you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You see what David is saying? Lord, you are really, you're really pinching my space here. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. So he said, you know, Lord, you're hemming me in. You're surrounding me, and your hand is upon me. I need to have some room to breathe. <laughs> I remember the movie, uh, Remember the Titans. One of my favorite lines in there was Denzel Washington said, you're cooking my grits, coach. You're cooking my grits. And in a sense, that's what David is saying. You're cooking my grits, Lord. You're cooking my grits. So then he said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. It was more than David could comprehend. So David, in one sense, is just pushing back from the omniscience, the all-knowing God. And I find myself doing the same thing. And I often find in my life when, when things aren't going well, if I examine my life, I'm doing my thing. I'm not doing God's thing. And I bet you'll find the same is true of you. Uh, we're just going to go off on a wild hair and do what we want rather than what the Lord wants. And uh, so you think, you act, God knows. You think, you act, God knows. Now, um, Acts 8, uh, 15, 18 Known to God from eternity are all his works. God was not surprised by 9-11, nor was he surprised by the election cycle last year. 
nor was he surprised by all the garbage that's going on in the world. He knows. But he wants to work. As a matter of fact, he does. Years ago, I heard uh, uh, an evangelist uh, said, or about an evangelist who said, God is at work every moment of every day and every life on the face of the earth. And that's absolutely the truth. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the great sand dunes for just a moment. Um, we moved to Colorado, uh, back to Colorado in 1983. We'd been in Texas for six years. And I pastored while I was down there, finished up seminary while I was down there. We moved back to Colorado, and we were in Los Animas, southeastern Colorado, between La Junta and Lamar. Los Animas usually doesn't make the weather map, but La Junta and Lamar do because it gets hot down there. So um, our kids went roller skating. Our oldest daughter was in uh, fourth grade, and Rachel was in second grade. And we had a lot of kids. We didn't have a youth group, but we had a lot of kids, and they grew into a youth group. But... Uh, we went roller skating, and uh, our oldest daughter fell, and she put her hand down to catch her, and she wasn't feeling very well afterwards. And finally, we went into the doctor, and they x-rayed, and she had broken both bones in her wrist. And she had, it was just kind of a compression fracture, and you could see where the bones had just kind of puffed out. So she had to put on a cast. Well, shortly after that, we uh, took the kids to the Great Sand Dunes. I'd never been there before, haven't been there since. But the sand dunes are interesting because uh, the water washes the sand out of the sand dunes, and then the streams dry, and the wind blows, and the wind blows the sand back up and heaps up this huge pile of sand. And they have signs all over the, por the park, do not remove sand from the sand dunes. So we went to the sand dunes. When we got home, Rebecca was finding a wooden spoon so she could put it down inside her cast and scratch because her wrist was itching and she couldn't. And finally she turned her hand upside down and put it on the table, and tapped the cast, and a pile of sand came out. She had violated the law. <laughs> but, but, but she didn't know it. But the thing, the point is, the Lord knew what grains of sand were in her cast. He knew how many grains of sand were in her cast. He knew where they originated, and he knew where they were. And, uh, you know, the Scripture tells us that the Lord named the stars, all of them, and there are billions of them. And uh, oftentimes in Scripture, he talks about the sand of the sea. A little later in the psalm, we're going to see the, main, the, the thought of sand coming back up again. But the point is, God is all-knowing, all-knowing. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. And that knowledge is almost incomprehensible. And he knows everything about every person that has ever drawn breath on this planet on everyone that was ever conceived, he knows. And so David's heart was disquieted within him by the fact that he understood this. So how did David respond? Well, there's some continued disorientation when we talk about God's omnipresence, his omnipresence, that he is everywhere present. Not only does he know all things, but he's present everywhere. So David, in a sense, is saying, you know, Lord, I'm going to run away and hide. I'm going to run away and hide. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Another merism. Heaven and the underworld. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, 
Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Where can I go to flee from God? I can't. It's impossible. We can't. Sometimes we want to. Sometimes we want to quit. Sometimes we want to run away. But there's no way to run, no, nowhere to run where God is not. Nowhere. So, you think, you act, God knows. You run, you cannot hide. You cannot hide as much as we would like to. And I guess that's not a bad thing because we're never out of his sight. Hallelujah for that. Though sometimes in our rebellion, we want to, uh, we want to, we want to handle things on our own. So we're going to turn to the lesson of the sugar bowl. The lesson of the sugar bowl. A little girl was having a conversation with her mom about the omnis, you know, the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence of God. And she said, Mommy, is God really present everywhere? And said, yeah. She said, well, is, is God present in this house? And she said, well, I suppose so. So, well, is God present in the kitchen where we're sitting? Yes, he's present in the kitchen. Well, Mommy, is God in the sugar bowl? And she said, well, yeah, I suppose he's in the sugar bowl too. So she carefully reached out and took the lid and, and slammed it on the, on the sugar bowl. And she said, gotcha. Not quite. But you see, the problem is, is we want to we want to deal with God on our terms, not on his. We want to deal with God the way we want to deal with God. And in a sense, we want to put him in our sugar bowl, and we want to take him out when we need him and put him back when we don't. But we can't do that because God is everywhere present, everywhere present. Think about Jonah for just a minute. Jonah decided that uh, God said, go east, young man. And Jonah said, I believe I'll follow, follow Horace Greeley and go west. So he got on board the ship. He said, I'm going to flee from the presence of God. He got on the ship. He went down into the hold of the ship. He fell asleep. He was probably in the middle of the ship where the center of gravity was. So that when the storm came, the ship was going side to side and up and down. But if you're in the very center of the ship, you don't notice the motion so much. And he was asleep, rockabye baby. And the men, the sailors, were really terrified, and they finally said, why is this happening? And so they, they got Jonah up, and uh, why is this happening? He said, well, uh, because I'm running from God. So they rode hard to come to land. They couldn't do it. And he finally said, if you want to survive, just chunk me into the sea. So they chunked him into the sea, but God had appointed a great fish, and the fish swallowed Jonah. And in the middle of the fish, Jonah repented. And the point of uh, Jonah chapter 1 is you just can't keep a good man down. Come on. So God commanded the fish, and the fish barfed Jonah on the beach. And then the Lord said to Jonah, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim what I tell you. And he went, the reluctant prophet. But he wanted to get away. And how well did that work out? Not at all. Not at all. So um, the Lord is everywhere present, even though we try to flee. And apparently Jonah hadn't read Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. So, but then there's a lessening disorientation as we look at Psalm 139, 13 to 18. Psalm 139, 13 to 18. And this deals with God's... Uh, 
He's the omnipotent creator. And this deals with birth, conception and birth, and so on. And if you think about birth, it is a remarkable thing. The smallest cell in any human body is a male sperm. And the largest cell in any human body is a, a, a female egg. And when they come together, stuff happens. And this describes some of that. David said, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, he pictures himself as being assembled out of sight of, of human eyes, and that was certainly true. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And what David is saying is, Lord, even before I was born, you set out my days. None of us know, well, we don't now, the day of our birth, but we don't really know the day of our death. Uh, we, we don't know. And uh, the Lord says that he has a plan for us and a purpose for us. I came to Christ at CSU in 1969. And little did I know how the Lord would lead and direct and guide in my life, but he really has. As I look back, I can see the indelible hampering of God on every turn and every direction that I took. I was going to be a consulting engineer, have my own structural engineering practice, and I was well on my way to doing that. But God redirected me to work with people who live forever as opposed to buildings and bridges that are temporary. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need structural engineers or architects or uh, other people like that or, or bricklayers or, or masons or... Uh, concrete workers or doctors. We need everybody. And God has wired us. And he has appointed days for us. And somebody once talked about the dash. You know, you go to the cemetery and you look on the headstones and as born on, you have the date. Died on, you have the date. But in, what's in between is the dash. And the dash is what the Lord is talking about here. What are you going to do with the days that God has given you? How is he going to use you? Because he wants to use you. And not everybody needs to be a preacher. Could you imagine how boring church would be if everybody was a preacher? Come together and let's see, we would have about 70 messages this morning. We wouldn't get done before the second service started. <laughs> so, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in verse 16, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God had a plan that he set out for David. He made David to be the king of Israel. But David didn't know that when he was born. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Just think about the great sand dunes or the Sahara Desert. I awake and I am still with you. So David is beginning to shift his focus. He's not quite so disoriented now. He's beginning to regain perspective as he moves forward. Uh, Jeremiah 32:17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Let's read the last phrase together. There is nothing too hard for you. So, um, and then Amos 
4.13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is, and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Hallelujah. That's, that's, that's our God. That's our God. So how has God wired you? When uh, we moved to Los Animas, uh, our son Benjamin was born uh, a little over a year after we arrived, and uh, he was uh, nine years younger than Rachel and 11 years younger than Rebecca. At any rate, when Benjamin was five, the girls were going to camp. And Did you go to camp with them that year when mom counseled the first year? Or did you go with grandma and grandpa, Rachel? You don't remember. At any rate, so Benjamin and I were home alone, which is a dangerous thing. But the girls went to camp, and they made a pact with Beth that nobody would know that Beth was Rebecca's mother. So a counselor got sick, and uh, one of the guys from our church would go to Horn Creek Ranch every year and said, uh, so she, he called Beth and said, Beth, we're short a counselor. Could you come up? It was like two days before camp began. And she said, sure. And it was junior high camp. I said, sure. And I looked at her, and I thought, are you crazy? So, but she kept saying the year before, the first year we were there, she said, I don't know where I fit. I don't know where I fit. She had tried children's ministry. She had tried women's ministry, tried all those things. She didn't fit in any of those areas. So she went to camp, and she was the oldest counselor at camp. I mean, she's not, she wasn't that old then, but she was still older than everybody else. And she had a girl in her cabin that was suicidal. She was the best person in camp to have that girl in her cabin. So the last Wednesday night that they were there, uh, Beth stayed up all night for fear that the girl would attempt suicide. But she didn't sleep at all. She was just really wrung out. At any rate, she came home from camp, and she said, I know where I fit. I said, what do you mean? She said, working with junior high kids. And I thought, you have lost your mind. <laughs> I, I get along with senior high. I get along with young adults. I get along with older adults, uh, children, and that just doesn't fit me. That's not who I am, but it's who she was. So for 25 years, Beth did junior high ministry, and she loved it. And when Benjamin graduated from high school, she said, you know, I don't understand junior hires anymore, so she stopped. But for 25 years, she invested in junior high kids, and uh, she was really good. So where do you fit? Every one of us can have ministry. It may be one-on-one -on -one having coffee with a neighbor. It may be leading a small group. It may be, you know, talking to people at work about the Lord Jesus. But we all have a purpose, and the Lord has numbered our days, and he's given us being, and purpose. So God wants us to align ourselves with his uh, loving purposes and kindness. So you think, you do, he knows. You run, you can't get away, you can't escape. <laughs> and uh, so in one sense, God is saying, I'm the potter. You're the clay. We get into trouble when we say, I'm the, I'm the potter. Get out of the way. So, uh, so the Lord wants us to align ourselves with your maker and with his goodness. Align yourself, align your life, align your ministry uh, with what God has for you. 
And there's plenty of places to minister, thousands of places to minister, hundreds of thousands of opportunities. And you have some that are specially designed for you because of the way God wired you. So align yourself with your maker and his goodness. This is point number four. And this is a time of reorientation. And so David begins immediately by saying, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. David was having trouble. But think about it. In David's life, David always had trouble. He was always at war. People were pursuing him. He was hiding. He was hiding from Saul. Uh, He was hiding from his son. And we don't know what the background was for this psalm that he penned it. But he's saying, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain, and people around us take the Lord's name in vain. They use the name of Jesus flippantly, and that always grieves my heart. Do not hate, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete uh, hatred. I count them my enemies. Well, how does this align with Matthew 5, uh, 43 to 45? Um you know, where Jesus says, love your enemies, uh, treat them well. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, because what David prayed in Psalm 139 is what we call an imprecatory prayer, an imprecatory psalm. He was praying against the enemies of God and so on. And here's what Jesus said in uh, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you, that you may be sons of my Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So how do you resolve those two things? Well, certainly one was in the old covenant, uh, the covenant of Moses. One was in the new covenant. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit problematic. And uh, so Jesus said, you know, love your enemies, pray for them, do good to them. Here David prays that God would kill or destroy them. A, a contradiction between these uh, imprecatory prayers of the psalmist and the ethics of our Lord uh, raises the theological tension as how these two passages can coexist. One of the best treatments is by a guy named uh, Chalmers Martin uh, from Princeton Theological Review. And he said this. Here are four points which are helpful in understanding these prayers. They are the expression of the longing of an Old Testament saint for the vindication of God's righteousness. We, We want God to be honored, do we not? And we don't see him honored much in our country. Um... But I'll tell you, most Christians today do not uh, take Matthew 5 very seriously in their own lives. No, we're casting stones at one another. We're spearing one another. We're uh, laying people out who don't agree with us. Somehow we've missed the sense and the tenor of the message of the Lord Jesus. So I said in the Old Testament, they are an expression of, of the longing of an Old Testament saint for the vindication of God's righteousness. 
Number two, they are the utterance of zeal for God and God's kingdom. They are directed against the enemies of God and of his causes on the earth. And David was God's representative. He was God's king. Three, they are the Old Testament saints' expression of his, abhor- of his abhorrence to sin. The enemies of God are viewed as the very embodiment of sin, hostility against God. And number four, they are a prophetic teaching as to the attitude of God towards sin, toward the impenitent and persistent sinners. So those are four ways to think about it. David was longing for the Lord to be honored in his life and in his um, in his ministry. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, said there will be a resurrection, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is coming a day of reckoning. And some will go into heaven, and some will be cast into the lake of fire. So uh, in a sense, David's prayer was reflecting that. But the New Testament, uh, we've there's been an unfolding of God's purposes. And in the New Testament, we see the full purposes of God unfolded before us. And one of, one of those purposes is how we treat our enemies. <clears throat> a vengeance is mine, I will repay, <laughs> says the Lord. <laughs> First church I pastored, somebody broke into church on a Sunday night and they found about a, a less than $2 worth of money in the church. And I'd always ask our people, never leave any money in the church. Please don't leave any money in the church. We were almost in inner city Dallas, and uh, the crime rate in the neighborhood was high. So uh, the next Sunday night, somebody broke in again, and there was not a penny to be found anywhere in the church. And they broke a window to get in, and and there was a handprint and fingerprints and blood on the window. And I thought, yes, you know. So when I called the police department, I went into the church, and it was hot. I thought, why is the church so hot this morning? It's never hot this hot on Monday. So I went in the the kitchen, and the the people who broke in had taken paper products, uh, paper towels for the dispensers in the bathroom and and, uh, uh, napkins, and and piled them up on the stove and turned the gas range on and left. And all of that stuff had burned, and next to the stove was a trash can, and it was filled with ashes, but the trash can never caught on fire. Anyway, when the police came, uh, they they did their stuff. They didn't do their CSI stuff, but they did some stuff. And as far as I know, the people that did it were never caught. I'm sure they were people looking for money to for, for their drug habit. So <clears throat> I said to one of the policemen, you know, sometimes I would just like to get a hold of some of these people and grab them by the lapel and shake some sense into them. That's known as a shaken sinner syndrome. And the policeman said, doesn't the Bible say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay? I felt about this tall. And I said, yeah, it says that somewhere. And I knew exactly where it was, Romans 12. I knew exactly where it was, but I wasn't going to admit that to him. And um, so sometimes our attitudes reflect more of our sinful nature than Christ's nature. And David is saying, listen, align yourselves with the Lord and his purposes. That's where satisfaction comes from. That's where joy comes from. (laughs) Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Out of the mouth of babes and policemen, 
the Lord has spoken. And then David comes to the end. This is where he's fully reoriented. Remember at the beginning he said, you search me and you know me. And it bugged him. But notice at the end, David has come full circle now. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the Lord wants us to align ourselves with him. So you do or you think. God knows. You run. You cannot hide. And then the Lord says, align yourself with your maker and his goodness. Align yourself with me. Align yourself with my purposes. And then there's going to be satisfaction and joy and productivity in our lives. We're going to represent Jesus Christ well in this world. Whatever, however God leads you, however God has hardwired you, and every one of us has a hardwiring that God has given us, and we need to use that hardwiring to accomplish his purposes, not our own. Now, today we have the privilege of observing the Lord's table. And if you did not get one of the little in op- un- unopenable cups, they're out in the back. One is out there screaming for you. Last night, I could not open. So if somebody could grab several of them and uh, distribute them, we would appreciate it. <clears throat> so there's a little cellophane thing on the top, and you open that first, and that gets to the, that gets to the bread. <clears throat> and then there's a second one that gets to the juice. And you have to be real careful because if you're not careful, you will turn purple. And uh, I should just hand this to somebody and say, please open this for me. But as we come to the Lord's table, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, and and when I saw that I was doing the Lord's Supper this week, I thought, this is perfect because it leads right into the Lord's table. Search me, O God, and know me, and try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. Oh, thank you. Thank you, brother. Have you had your shot? (laughs) I'm just kidding, man. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Could you imagine a church service like that? Well, in Corinth, that's not the church you wanted to be called to pastor, that's for sure. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What I say to you, shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you, for I received from the Lord. That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken or given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after his supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this morning as we come, we're going to take just a a minute or two uh, to just quietly reflect and pray. And, And I want you to also know that the Lord's table is only for people who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd ask that you not partake because you don't belong to him, but you can. You can even trust him right where you're seated. You can say, you know, Lord, I am a sinner. I want you to forgive my sin. I trust you as my Savior and my sin bearer. Change me. And he will do that because he's the almighty one. He not only made you, but he can make you again, probably. So take a few moments and just... uh, Pray and seek the face of God and uh, ask him to uh, clean up your act for you as search me, O God, and know me. So just take a few moments. Father, uh, were it not for your grace and mercy, we could not partake of this at all. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you've given your Son. You've uh, given us the seal of your Spirit that guarantees our salvation forever once we know Christ. And Lord, as we come today, We pray that this time would be a a sacred and holy time, not just something that we tack on at the end of the service, but that we might truly come and seek your face. And so the Lord Jesus, after uh, he took the, the bread and he blessed it and then he broke it, and he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. So let's open this bread, and before you partake, let's do as Lord Jesus, we've blessed it, just break it as a reminder of of him. And let's partake together. In the same manner after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. And that that phrase is loaded because it talks about the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, today, we'd ask that you would bless this cup and may we walk in newness of life. May we walk in light of our calling. And we will give you praise and thanks for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross and offering yourself freely for us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's preach together. Well, the Scripture says that they sang a hymn and they went out. So let's... uh, Sing together and go out as we go out. Amen, church. Let's stand. Mm-hmm.